Welcome to the second episode of Tales of Our Sisters, a podcast exploring the art within numerous forms of storytelling from the worlds lived and told by Black women storytellers. I am your host, Cynthia Francelon, and thank you for tuning in. And, and before we even get started, I also want to give a huge shout out to every single person who has hit me up over the past two weeks letting me know how much they enjoy my podcast and and how necessary it is and how much the first episode broke you down and picked you back up again. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. That's why we're here. And I'm excited to hold you guys accountable while also holding your hand through this journey because it is a scary, exciting, beautiful one and you deserve. We deserve. Uh, I especially want to shout out two people. Elena Fernandez-Collins, thank you so much for your feature of my podcast on the AV Club. I, I've been a fan of the AV Club since I was in undergrad studying journalism. This is really cool. A beautiful, beautiful appreciation. Um, thank you. Thank you. And I also want to thank Erica Nicole, who wrote a thread on Twitter as she was uh, listening to the first episode, and it was just a beautiful, vulnerable moment of self-exploration to figuring out herself as a storyteller and how firm she felt in the doubt and the fear and everything that comes with the beauty of having a voice to express. So Erica Nicole, thank you so much. Elena Fernandez-Collins, thank you so much. Everybody else, thank you so much. I am hyped and wired and ready. (laughs) So now that I've been able to get that off my chest, let's get into it, right? Shall we? So now that, you know, I have given us the moment to kind of call out that fear, right? Now, it was put to the forefront in the first episode. It, it, we stared right into the mirror. So now it's time to kind of bring it back, come back to basics, I think that one of the things that makes us so fearful of being able to tell our stories is the lack of practice that we have with allowing our voice to be a thing. One of the most important things that my therapist has told me was that some of the best people are not afraid to be students. You know, it's one thing to be a teacher. It's one thing to have all the information, to know things, but it's also really amazing to not. It allows you to be curious about the world. It allows you to be excited to try something new. And we've adapted newness to be this really fearful and scary thing, but sometimes our fear isn't even really fear. It's it's more excitement, misplaced excitement. You know, new things are actually really exciting sometimes. And when we give ourselves the opportunity to explore that excitement, the sky is the limit. And when it comes to our voices, one thing that I noticed as well is that our voices are very particular. We have very particular experiences. And because we have particular experiences, our imagination for what the world can look like, should look like, would look like, is also a very particular one. And my intrigue with wanting to study our ancestors of the arts is because these were Black women that were conjuring ideas and and worlds and characters within those worlds that very much looked like us, but that also didn't. You know, they were created very intentionally. It it almost felt spiritual. Actually, not even almost. It, It was very spiritual because I think storytelling is a very spiritual practice. And I think the beautiful part about being able to face yourself is to see just how imaginative you are, just how uh, fluid you are as a human being. But sometimes that can scare us, especially when we don't have a blueprint to what that fluidity can look like or even be. We do so much work in continuing what society has taught us to silence those voices. So now that there's an opportunity to elevate them, 
we kind of say, no, 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 we can't do that. And in having and studying our ancestors of the arts who did not have blueprints for the voices that they had, but they knew that they needed to express their voices because it gave them solace, it gave them freedom, it gave them peace of mind. They created work that the world had never seen before. They had structures that the world had never seen before. And a lot of times those structures were chastised. They were minimized because it didn't look like what we were used to. And what we're used to is white storytellers. There are structures that white storytellers have created, have built a, um, um, a curriculum behind, and it becomes the blueprint. So that means that everybody, not just white people, but everybody follows that blueprint because that blueprint is, or so they think, is the universal language. But our blueprints, as different, as diverse as they may be, a lot of times they didn't understand. And because they didn't understand it, then it might not be good, of course. But that's not the truth. It's not that it's not good. It's just different. It's not in your lexicon. So how about you step outside of your lexicon and into mine? And that's what's interesting. We are reluctant to let people into our worlds because we don't trust them. And that is why it is important to practice your voice. It's not enough to just have it. Like, yes, you have your voice. It is beautiful. It is yours. But if you don't trust your voice, then you're not going to share it. And the only way that you can trust your voice is if you, you face it. You build a relationship with it. You practice that relationship. You love it. You nurture it. You care about it so much that you want to share it with everybody. And so it's important that we acknowledge that our voices come from people before us that taught us storytelling in ways that are so much farther than what we've been taught. Across the diaspora, we have learned that our ancestors, not just ancestors of the arts, I'm talking about like our people, told stories orally, oral tradition, told stories through dance, told stories through music, singing, food, drawing, you know? When they couldn't read and write, they had their voice. And it was that voice that carried who you are to you. Our culture wrapped up in story, folklore, religion. You see what I mean? So it's important that we learn to get back to these practices, back to exploring our voice and understanding that it could look and be so many things. And also realizing that our audience is not limited to white people. And because it is not limited to white people, that means we do not have to shift our voice so they can understand it. If they want to read it, they are free to. But we are not going to shift our voice just to be understood. So how do we do that? How do we get comfortable enjoy our voice, we got to practice it. We are not above practice. And how do we practice it? You got to study it. You got to study people that stepped outside their box. You got to study people that didn't have the white gaze as their audience. They didn't care about that. They were invested in, in who they are. And so that's what this episode is going to be about. We are going to study. We are going to take notes. We are going to learn how to not write for representation, not write for the white gaze. Not No, we're writing for us. We're going to look ourselves in the mirror. Ooh, that's scary. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. So who are we going to learn from? Who are we going to learn from today? I, <sighs> I love being a student. I love learning. Am I scared of it sometimes? Yes. But overall, I love learning. And so this person in particular taught me at a time that I needed to be taught. I think I was in my uh, second year of grad school. I was in my second year of 
grad school and mind you, this was a very interesting time for me. I was really beginning to take myself seriously as a storyteller, but also understanding the complexities of being a black woman storyteller because I had come to a roadblock in my stories where it didn't feel authentic and I felt like there was more that I should be doing. And I think it was BAM. Yes, it was the Brooklyn Academy of Music that they were having this, um, I think it was a film showcase where they were honoring filmmakers that never got their shine. And so I saw this film that was listed called Losing Ground. I was like, okay, this, this is kind of interesting. And around that time, I was trying to study all types of films and just watch everything. So I ended up going and I watched Losing Ground. And I was amazed because I had never seen a movie that was so lush without trying so hard to be, that portrayed black life in a way that I hadn't seen before, that celebrated the simple but still made it magical, that came out in the 80s. And I had known a few 80s films that we had made and it didn't look like this. And I remember just falling in love with the intuitive choices that felt so obvious to me that the director had made when I was watching it. And so when I left and I did research at Kathleen Collins and I, I looked her up and really um, began to dig into her story, oh man, I mean, it broke my heart and lifted me up at the same time. So what did I find out about her? Well, Kathleen Collins was a playwright, a poet, a novelist, a civil rights activist, but we know her as a filmmaker and a professor. Interestingly enough, film was not her first uh, storytelling art form. It was probably her last. She had her experience, her practice in, in playwriting, in writing stories and so on and so forth, but film? was something she really wanted to play with. And it wasn't until one of her students, Robert K. Gray, who ended up becoming her DP for Losing Ground, it wasn't until Robert told her, like, you should explore this. Like, actually, go ahead and make your own films. You have the mind for it. So she did. In 1980, she directed her first feature film, the Cruz Brothers, and Miss Malloy. This movie was about three Puerto Rican brothers who basically deal with the shadow of their late father's ghost at the same time of inheriting this elderly white woman's home. <laughs> and this story that has such a lighthearted melancholy to it, such a contradiction of words, but it feels like both. It's such a simple story that she elevated with this, like I said earlier, like there was an intuitive mind that she had where she was able to bring this story such life. And you can see it, despite the fact that this movie cost $5,000 to make. Okay, y'all, a feature film costing $5,000, for me personally, is unheard of. You are pinching pennies and she didn't have as much support she had to ask a lot of friends and family and take money from out of her own pocket to finance this film all five thousand dollars but you would not be able to tell she did such a beautiful job and i think once she made this film knowing how she was able to pinch the pennies to do it and for it to still turn out the way that it did all of that hard work and the finished product being so beautiful that confirmed to her that, okay, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I'm gonna do this shit again. And literally, two years later, that's when Losing Ground was created. Now, the difference between the Cruz brothers and Losing Ground, what makes both of them important but makes them different is that while the Cruz brothers was based on a short story collection, Losing Ground was written from her own mind. This was a story about a married couple, um, the wife named Sarah, who was a professor that was very much invested in theory and books and didn't really live, live much of a spontaneous life, but was married to a black artist who was all about spontaneity. 
Sarah in some ways feels underappreciated as a scholar, as a thinker. And sometimes it feels as though her husband's artwork kind of swallows them together, you know? And so one day when he gets to sell one of his paintings, he decides to take them upstate to celebrate. And while they're there, he flirts his way through town and meets Celia, this Puerto Rican woman that he turns into a muse. And all the while you have Sarah who is toying with the fact that, you know, my life isn't spontaneous. So what do I do with that? Maybe I should, you know, bring some spontaneity into it. And so she does so by being the star of her student's short film and starring alongside this debonair man who is strange and mysterious, but also pushes something out of her. Now, these were characters that people were not used to seeing. Black characters that people in the early 80s were not used to seeing. And because of that, after she created this film, it was very hard to find distribution in the U.S. Because they didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know where to put her. Kathleen was very much invested in the psyche. She was invested in why people did the things that they do. You know, she portrayed Black people as artists, as thinkers, as scholars, you know, as creators, as people that, that were just like her. This was, this was her life. These are the people that she spoke to, that she created with when she was marching and when she was part of the civil rights movements. These were people that she talked to, that she spent her time with, and she wanted to emphasize that in her art, but it just wasn't taken seriously, unfortunately. And in the time after Losing Ground was made, she continued to write plays and direct them and write novels and write other screenplays, but the lack of support, especially in distribution, was so heavy that it discouraged her. On top of that, she was dealing with a lot of personal issues. Her, her marriage, uh, her children, depression, a lot of things that she didn't really talk about and that was building up blocks in her body. And alongside that, she was also dealing with an illness. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer and she kept it to herself for a long time. And when I was reading one of her books in one of the journal entries, she talked about the fear of talking about it because it might minimize her strength. She was afraid of being weak. So she did her best to swallow this, you know, try to go on her treatments and, and keep this bottled up and continue to pursue her career. But you put all those things together, it, it messed her up. All, all of that contained in her body lack of being able to express herself, lack of being supported romantically, lack of, of not having the tools and the mind and the emotional intelligence to really give herself to her, her, her family, not being able to thrive as a creator, and then also slowly dying. It discouraged her. This beautiful art form that she found solace in it, film is literally one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive art form. So not getting the support really, really troubled her. And six years later, after making Losing Ground, in 1988, she passed away from breast cancer. and She was only 46. She left behind two films, a series of journals, short stories, plays, all of these amazing things that she never had the opportunity to really bring to life visually like she have she would have wanted, especially after discovering a voice in it. And um, it's a very hard truth. And so thankfully, years later, her daughter Nina Collins found a chest filled with her mother's work all of the work that we talked about, including a reel of Losing Ground. And when she watched it, she realized all of these things people need to see. So around 2015, she teamed up with Milestone Films and they got it remastered. 
and is screened at the Film Society at Lincoln Center, where it got praise for being genius. The New Yorker even reviewed it and couldn't stop praising it for just how amazing it was, highlighting that it needed to be amongst the class of classics, especially indie film between the 1960s to the 1980s. And not too long after, Nina decided to take it one step further by editing and publishing her mom's short stories, manuscripts, plays, and even the screenplay for Losing Ground and another one that she would have eventually made into two short story collections. The first one titled, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love? And the second one, Notes from a Black Woman's Diary. And when I tell you they are some of the finest pieces of work I've ever read, I cannot stress it enough. She is definitely amongst the class of Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Toni K. Bambara and all of these other amazing women who had minds and a pen. And that is why I, I admire and love Kathleen. And... Till this day, it pains me. You know, when I revisit her work, which I do, I revisit her books, I revisit Losing Ground, I revisit The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy. When I revisit her work, it pains me that I will never get to be her student in a classroom setting. I'll never get to hear her learn from the stories that she would have been able to produce after Losing Ground had she gotten the support and the time to do so. I'll never be able to get to hear her talk about her impact because I know that she would have had a major one, especially being able to celebrate her film. And so as much as it pains me, I just know that what I meant to do is to follow along her footsteps. And that's the whole point, to follow along her footsteps and to share what I know. And I mean, you know, Even though I didn't get to be her actual student, she did leave something behind that can literally be a syllabus if if somebody really wanted to make one out of it. A two-hour class back in 1984 that was recorded at Howard University is available online thanks to Milestone Films. And y'all, this two-hour talk is her talking with other Black film students about the art of writing, of moving away from the white gaze, you know, removing the distraction, the methods we've been taught to really get to the seed of the story. And that is what we are here to do. We are here to get to the seed. We're here to remove the dirt to find the pearl in the center, right? And so we're going to do that by kind of taking a little bit of notes from this two-hour talk. So what I want y'all to do is take out your notebooks, (laughs) take out a notebook, take out a pen, and get ready to work. I had so much fun doing this on my own, like actually re-watching and re-watching and and literally buying a notebook just so I could take these notes and to keep for myself. And um, this is what I want y'all to do. Because this is the study. Even if you don't end up writing just like Kathleen, which you really don't need to, it is a new way of breaking down the mental gymnastics of having to write the way we've been taught. You're going to write like how you actually feel. So let's start, right? But, oh, real quick, disclaimer. We are just going briefly through a few of the things that uh, she's taught me. I still want you to go and listen to this class because I'm, I'm, I, there is so much that I won't be talking about because we ain't got the time, but I'm telling you now, this is a class that you will continue to watch over and over again because it teaches you so much. So I am going to go through four to five things that I learned from that talk. Briefly go through it, talk a little bit, elaborate a little bit, but that's it. All right. So Lesson number one from the school of Kathleen Collins. Stray from the mythological realm. The food of the character would have to be 
come from my having something about the character that really obsessed me. Any other kind of character places you in that what I call mythological realm. What it does is you say, well, I'm going to do this character because he was very important in black history, or I'm going to do this character because, I mean, after all, he reflects the values of our people that we are trying to present to the outside world, and in presenting this character, I am therefore uh, moving the black race along to a, a greater sense of, of, of perception and self and so on and so forth. That is the rhetoric. That is a lie. That does not work. And it doesn't work because the impulse in any human being is to reach out towards somebody else's humanity that makes sense to them. That is where change happens in the psyche. It does not happen out of an external respect for ideas. It happens out of an internal longing for feeling from the inside of a character. So how do we get here? How did we get to to this? So um, Kathleen Collins started out this talk addressing the ways in which whiteness greatly hovers over our imaginations, right? How their portrayal of us, especially when it comes to film, these were the first visual portrayals of us, how they're divided into two categories. You have the saint and the sinner. And so when we're saints, we're considered extraordinary. You know the magical Negro? It's that, that trope where a black person sometimes has mystical powers and abilities and they kind of serve as like this angel or a guide to white people. And they may not even have all that, but they may just be these really sweet and kind, almost forgiving black people that help lure the white people to this sort of goodness and freedom. And so when we're the sinners, we're evil. We're the nail under the foot where we're no good. We're that thing that needs to be taken out. We're a disruption in their perfect world. And both of these personas are projected by white people to absolve themselves of responsibility for the centuries of enforced trauma towards us across the diaspora. And these roles, because they're the first ones that we visually take, because, you know, power of media, these roles insinuate that black people are abnormal. You know, the luxury of simply being not good, not bad, just in between, isn't afforded to us. And while we've gotten opportunities to tell our own stories beautifully once we were able to be in the forefront of them. Unfortunately, a lot of times we still fall victim to mysticizing each other. Now, what does that mean to mysticize each other? It means that even though we think we've deviated from the saint and the sinner, in many ways, we uphold these images of us that aren't even real because they don't address the gray area. They don't address the fact that we aren't all good and we aren't all bad. Those images weren't even created for us, but we're holding them because these are the only images that we know, right? And so we don't know how to write characters that are whoever they want to be. We don't know how to be honest about the fact that as human beings, we are so many things. And so when we do that, we dishonor our characters. Because remember when I said how storytelling is a spiritual process? It is. And when we write our characters, when we create our worlds, they don't just come out of the blue. You know, it's not just happenstance. Your characters choose you. Your characters are conjured from something real, something tangible, something you've experienced, something you can feel, something you can see. As human beings, we are not one thing or the other. So when we have characters that come to us and we kind of make them into this mythological being of 
representing an idea of goodness because we want to be seen as good. We are literally ignoring the fact that we are not good all the time. Our characters are trying to get through to us that we are these, these nuanced beings and that we should be allowed to be as such. A lot of our stories, you know, we don't like to, to uh, celebrate our lives being mundane, being average. You know, we, we don't like to do that. But why not? Sometimes we live dry ass average lives. You know, we will not rush to write a story about the garbage truck man. We will rush to write a story about a person who owns a six-figure business. Both lives are valid lives. And both lives have nuance. But why are we afraid to show the life of the garbage truck guy? Why don't we think that that life is also one that is fun and beautiful and light and filled with depth? Why not? Why can't that story be celebrated? And even if it's not filled with depth, why not just celebrate this life that, you know, was kind of, it goes through what it goes through. And so that's what she, she talks about. She talks about not turning us into these beings that we have to place on pedestals. Loving ourselves and admiring ourselves doesn't mean that we have to absolve ourselves of our nuance. Our nuance is what makes us so precious. It's what's so beautiful. You know, so when your character comes to you, when a location sparks something, it's not something to take lightly. You know, our characters are people. They have lives when we meet them. They've been brought up in a world that has shaped their ideas of themselves thus far. Their environments illustrate the way this person operates in the world and what that operation looks like is very particular. When writing fiction, we, we can't hold our characters to these ideals that aren't true to them. In the story, we can probably have them confront these ideals, but we can't hold them so tightly because we're afraid or ashamed of the in-between. They are not to be seen through the lens of simply representing what we think of the world. They are so much more than that. And we have to respect that. We have to respect that humanity. We have to take time to get to know them, study them, listen to them through what they say and don't. I always told myself that if or when I ever teach storytelling, I will have my students practice meditating with their stories because that's important. There is a spirit that follows you through every story that you write and that's your character. And, and a lot of times your characters come from you. So um, if there is a mirror you have to look into and your character is that mirror, then face it. Don't turn them into a unicorn because you're afraid to face the things about them that you can't accept about yourself yet. Face your characters as you face yourself. Lesson number two. Film is to move people through space and light. If you think about film... Uh, in the bare sense, it is nothing, and I insist that it is nothing but space and light. That's all it is. It is the placement of people inside these two illusions, which are space and light. Therefore, the first thing you should do when you think about freedom, about film, is you have to think about the freedom to move people through space and light in ways that make a statement about who they are out of the raw material of film, not first out of language. Language is to some degree, it's not that it's secondary, but that it has to come out of a respect for the geography of cinema, which is 
these two dynamics so that it, it, so that, so that language shouldn't it it shouldn't be in it it shouldn't be the starting tool for, for for developing film characters. The language should finally just happen. What they say, if the environment is correct, what, what they say, if the camera angle is correct, flows naturally. I have always been taught, and I really believe that this is extremely true, but locations are characters too. Where you place your characters, where they move, how freely they move in and out of spaces confirms so much of their identity, their reactions, what they want to say, how they want to say it. And, and on top of location being a character, allowing room for your, for your, your characters to, to experience the things that happen to them, putting them in places where those experiences change their outlook on life or even in that moment, what they think about themselves, what they think about the world. All of that authenticity has to take shape, but it can't take shape if you're forcing them into places or if you're forcing them into situations that don't feel natural to what's actually happening. You have to pay attention to the story your character's trying to walk you through. Why are they going here? What is it about this place that's going to change them or encourage them to stay the same? What are their reactions to these places in the movement that they go through as people, what takes them outside of themselves? What forces them outside of the box? I write a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, and one post that I had was called Movement is the Medicine. And when you are thinking about the typical structure of a character, usually we find them in a place that isn't working for them anymore and they embark on some type of journey that's going to take them to face whatever has kept them stagnant and propel them into the next phase of their being. And the only way that could happen is if they place themselves in areas that toggle with that, that threaten it, you know? And there is freedom in movement. When you give your characters room and time to experience things as they happen to them, that propels a story forward naturally. And what Kathleen Collins is trying to say is, when we are so eager to create this representation, we are so eager to uphold our characters to these ideas that aren't even them, that means we are forcing everything around it just to fit that narrative. So none of it actually feels authentic. Because your characters are going to have to go to places that you don't want them to go to, but they got to go. They're going to revisit areas that made them comfortable at one point, but they go and they realize, ah, this doesn't hit anymore because it's not supposed to. And one thing to also keep in mind, these moments of discomfort don't have to be these huge things. The locations don't have to be these big extraordinary locations if you are naturally following the progression of your character where they end up is where they end up but you have to let them lead you and that's that's another thing that's what also makes this practice so spiritual yes there is a hand that you have in being the writer but there is also this thing where you have to give yourself room to let your character hold you by the hand and take you places. Some places you can't just conjure up for the sake of story. Some places you don't even realize your character is about to go to, but that intuition has to be present because then those locations and what it does to your character makes it real and that reality gives the story the richness that it deserves. It affirms your characters and captures that movement on film 
And that is what will move your audience as well. That creates the language, as she said. That creates the opportunity to speak something different through your life. And you miss that when you are forcing something that does not belong. And you won't know it doesn't belong unless you pay attention to the journey your character is on and you honor the journey. So it still goes back to the first point, which is your characters aren't mythological. They aren't these unicorns. Put them through some shit. They have to. And this is also a reflection of yourself. What spaces are you afraid to put yourself in because you know it's going to change you? You are afraid to be changed. If you let that fear of change reflect through your art, then where is the authenticity? Where is that movement? Where is that growth? Where is that curiosity? Lesson number three. What is your obsession? You see what I'm saying? In other words, what happens if is if you face the things you can't get over. For example, there are people who, as your character, he can't really get over his grandmother. That's an obsession in a way. Most interesting characters, by the way, are obsessed, or the writer is obsessed. If he can't get over his grandmother, the really the whole heart of him is that. Why? Why? What, what is it about this person? I mean, there are people, for example, who fall in love, right? And when the relationship is over, one person goes on to other relationships and makes a, a happy transition and resolution, and the other person remains stuck. They can't get over this person. You know, it happens all the time in life. Well, why? And if you could probe that feeling or that experience or that inability to go beyond something it's that that is the grip the gripping thing so something i've been taught is uh there's an exercise that i did in grad school and just to put people on to notice i went to grad school for screenwriting at a film program and one of the things that we were taught was what was our universal question? Now, what do you mean by that? The universal question is that question that your film is both asking and trying to answer. So when Kathleen's talking about an obsession, in some ways, your universal question is the obsession within the film. What is your character in pursuit of, whether they are conscious or unconscious about it, whether they illustrate how bad they want it through self-sabotage or through direct pursuit of obtaining it? You know, when we are obsessed with something, it doesn't leave us alone. That obsession governs so much of what it is that we do or don't, right? So what is your piece of work trying to get to the bottom of what is it trying to ask and and in asking the question what are you trying to to answer through it you know and she talks about the character having the obsession or the writer and a lot of times it could be both because once again when when spiritually paying attention to your character and their journey a lot of times we are us as the writer we're using our stories to figure something out. It could be something from our trauma. It could be something from our experiences that were fun or lighthearted or that we're curious about. It could be something that is completely foreign to us and it makes no sense and you're just trying to understand. But at the end of the day, there is something that confirms our existence in our obsession. For example, I have this obsession with tenderness. I am a soft, mushy-gushy being who loves to be tender, but I am so curious as to why we are afraid of it, why we are so afraid that we either push it away or we're so eager to have it because both of those those things come out of a, a, a sort of lack. 
why we lack so much tenderness when in reality all of us could not only benefit but secretly want it too but we live these lives where we pretend as if we don't this is what i'm obsessed with and i have this common thread and artists usually have a common thread that common thread is whatever project you see that that we create the underlying theme follows us because we're still trying to answer the question we're obsessed with it. So a lot of times that obsession kind of transfers over to our character and we use our art to answer those questions, to, to understand our obsession. So what is your obsession? And once again, it can't just be this representative idea. When you comb through all of that, what do you want to understand? And we have to make peace with our obsessions. We have to. When you make peace with your obsession, you are more eager to get to the bottom of it. You are more eager to explore all the possibilities in which the, the universal question that you have can be answered. Understanding that, you know what? Maybe you don't have the answers yet. And that is actually something that is real and people do not talk about this either enough. Once again, spiritual practice. Sometimes you have a story and you have a character and it will take you 10 years to finish the story because your movie has a question, but you ain't got no answer for it. And the only way you can answer it, the only way your character can answer it is if you yourself as a person, as a being, goes through life experiences that naturally pivots you toward that answer, right? There's that, but also the possibility of making peace with knowing that you may never have it. And that's why that thread is a, is a thread. Or maybe that thread is a thread because there are many ways to answer it. And, and you have fun answering it in many ways. But that point that Kathleen made about what is your obsession, that is something for you to take and admire about yourself as a storyteller because there is something in this world that has captivated you so much that you just want to you just want to understand it and you want to share this obsession with people this token of what your life is all about not all about maybe that's a little too far but you you, you see what i mean right what are you obsessed with? And how are you going to let that obsession carry you alongside your character as they move through these environments to get them closer? And so those are the three things that I've learned for her. I'm, 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 I'm going to give you guys one more. And I think this is a very, very, very good one. And I saved it for last for a reason. Like I said, there are so many things that I would have wanted to share from this talk, but if I did, it just wouldn't be fair because I really feel like you need to go and listen to it on your own. But here is your final lesson. Lesson number four. We as black storytellers are freer than we think. Not to compromise my beliefs. No, nobody's that interested in me. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I mean that literally. Uh, it's not so difficult for, uh, 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 for black people in a certain way because nobody in a certain way is really that interested. You're freer than you think. You're freer than you think because uh, the screen that is around you is so thick that... Um, Behind it, you can do an awful lot of thinking, awful lot of figuring out, and um, it'll take a long time for the world to even catch up with where your ideas are, because they're not even you're not you're not being perceived as a thinking being. So you're freer, you're a lot freer than you think. Man, I heard her say this, and I was just like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, cool. And and so the reason I definitely, I really was going to keep it, I like, I remember saying three and then four to five, but I, I wanted to keep this as short as I can, which is an understatement, but I had those three things and then I said, you know what, let me get, just give a bonus. And this had to be the bonus because it really needed to be said that 
we spend a lot of our time believing that we are less than when the truth of the matter is we are so much more than even the bare minimum that we think we are. And the question that was asked of her prior was a student asked, is she ever afraid of compromising her beliefs? Is she ever afraid of um, stifling her voice to cater to the white gaze? And she said, no. First of all, she said the white gaze is not her audience. Her audience are people that look like her. That's one. And two, her saying that, no, I don't worry about compromising my beliefs because they're not interested in me like that anyway. And they're not interested in me like that because they don't even see me for the thinker, the creator that I really am. And so this was in 1980, granted. I, a part of me does believe that some of that has changed. But I think it hasn't changed entirely for the better. I think that it's changed in, in the fact that, oh, I actually do acknowledge you for being something or someone very creative. Um, but still within my own consumption. It's still not about us. We can't just exist as creators for ourselves entirely. It's still... Be, and, and I think it's because... <sighs> Honestly, I think it's because in many ways we are still creating work that centers them. You know what I mean? When you spend so much time giving attention, giving your creative genius the attention for someone who's not even really going to completely see the scope of that genius, there is a level of ego that you stroke and you don't even realize. We spend so much time wanting their approval, and not enough time just simmering and reveling in our ability to dream and to dream colorfully. Because that's where the excitement is. Don't you love it when people leave you alone? You feel so good. You feel so able to be yourself. That's kind of what that is. That's kind of what she's saying. Because they don't see her as a threat, she can make what she want to make. The downfall is that she makes what she wants to make and then what she wants to show it to the world, because it's not who they want her to be, they're just like, oh, okay, what is this? And I think in, in, some, in some ways they're intimidated when they actually come face to face with that genius. But um, that still shouldn't discredit the fact that you're a genius just because they don't want to invest in it, you know, due to their own insecurity doesn't mean that they don't want to invest in it because you're not good enough. No, you're actually great. <laughs> you're actually great, and that's what's scary. So for Kathleen, it's just she's just saying, like, what point is it to question myself, my storytelling, where it comes from, from people that are just intimidated by it? The lies they spew is out of intimidation, out of insecurity. It's not out of truth. It's out of, oh, this is foreign to my lexicon. And instead of stepping into yours, because it doesn't look like mine, I don't want to invest it in. I don't really care about it. But that don't mean that your shit isn't good. That does not mean that your work isn't good. It means that they don't want to see it. They choose not to see it. Because then, going back to the beginning, they would have to face themselves. And they don't want to face themselves. So, um, yeah, we are freer than we think. In, in the capabilities to dream, yes. Yes. And it takes acknowledging that freedom, sitting in that freedom, investing in that freedom, being excited by that freedom because it's there. We are not helpless beings, period. Do we go through a lot of trials and tribulations just to exist? Absolutely. And we will unfortunately have to go through that consistently, but 
that doesn't mean that we are helpless beings. And the more that we realize, especially when it comes to creation, that we do have more freedom and liberty than we believe in terms of expressing those stories, you realize you can really do whatever the hell you want. (laughs) Now, getting the support, that's a little difficult. Not as difficult as it used to be, but there are still strides, plenty of strides that need to happen. But that doesn't mean that the actual creating can't exist. There are levels to it that, that there are tiers that will need to be reached, but it doesn't mean that it can't exist. So, um, yeah, I wanted to end it on that note. These are the three, I'm sorry. These are the four things that Kathleen Collins's talk really taught me. I mean, I'm telling you, there's so many other things that I'd even acknowledge because we ain't got the time, but that is an amazing talk that I, once again, will have linked to the podcast that you should go and listen to. I hope the sound clips helped, but most importantly, I hope the messages did. And so I want to leave y'all with some homework for each question, for each lesson I titled it, right? So for each lesson, I want you after you've listened to this and even after you've probably listened to her talk, you can choose between listening to her talk first or doing these exercises first, your decision. But I got four questions for you. For lesson number one, the title was Stray from the Mythological Realm. So the question that I have for you is, in what ways have you stifled your character and in what ways can you free them? Can you allow them to live their lives and to kind of guide you through it? In what ways have you tried to make your character into this representational piece and not as a human being? Face yourself here. I really, really want you to face yourself and and look through your work through whatever project you're currently working on and ask yourself, how have I stifled my own character? Just because I want them to represent something that may fight against who it is that they are by nature. For lesson number two, it was film is to move people through space and light. In your stories, can you describe the spaces that you place your characters in? and whether they feel real to you, whether your character needs to be there. And if not, where should they be? Number three, the lesson was, what is your obsession? So for number three, I want you to write that out. What is your obsession? What is your story's universal question? What are you obsessed with finding out? And if you have a series of stories that you've written, even ask yourself, what's your common thread? And for number four, lesson four, which is, as black storytellers, we are freer than we think. How can you free yourself? How do your stories free you? When you you think about them, when you write them, when you revisit them, when you leave them alone, how do they free you? How does knowing that you're a storyteller free you and not thinking about the white gaze, just as you, as who you are, how does being a storyteller free you? So those are the four questions with this lesson. So (laughs) you got homework. You got homework, which is to answer those questions and to watch Kathleen Collins's uh, masterclass. It's literally an amazing, amazing, amazing video that I revisit every six months. And from now on, I think it's going to be every three. Okay, so maybe every three is a little too much, but you feel me. But yeah, this is, uh, this is it. 
Not bad for our first masterclass, right? Hmm? These are the questions that I've left you with. These are the lessons I've left you with. And this is the person that I've left you with. She has been an amazing teacher to me. And I hope she can become a teacher to you. That's it. We done. Ooh, I kept y'all long today. <laughs> I kept y'all long. But I hope that it was worth it. I really do. And um, I'm looking forward to our next episode. We're going to dig into Kathleen just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I have a special guest with me. Okay? A special guest this next episode. So I'm excited about it. And I hope you are too. And uh, y'all take it easy. Make sure you do a lot of really good storytelling this weekend. All right? And I will catch you on the flip side. See y'all later. Later.